I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack. We are back from hiatus. We have to take a yearly hiatus from the show because the show is incredibly overwhelming and exhausting. <laughs> what? You were on vacation. But uh, Okay, so but no one needs to know that part. People need to know that this is a very intense show. We put a lot of love, energy, sweat, equity, time, consideration research and our sw- blood, sweat, and tears into the show. And so we needed a spiritual hiatus to get into some transcendental meditation <laughs> and then regroup in a fresher way. And now we're back. And After now we're back. doing this labor-intensive work, my muscles are still aching, but I'm ready to go. I have never <laughs> been more atrophying in my entire life. I'm like a ball of jelly. Uh, welcome to Art Attack with your host, uh, Soon to be PhD art history professor Lizzie Dastin and myself, Justin Bua, artist. Today, we are going to be talking about another topic that Lizzie is bringing up to the table, which she <laughs> feels is really important. And I'm, by the way, in no way do I think it's not important. It was very important, which is the 1913 Armory Show. Lizzie, why don't you lead us into, A, what this armory show is, and B, why it was so important. So the armory show really brought avant-garde European art to the United States in a public way for the first time. So that's the significance. At the time, what was most aesthetically predominant was the Ashcan School. So we did an episode on George Bellows. But the work of the Ashcan was about seeing social realism and addressing themes such as immigration and shifting gender roles, and everything was done in a representational manner. And it was called Ashcan because the colors were really gritty and they echoed the grime and the soot of the city that really was ubiquitous within that space. And so that is the type of art that people were expecting to see things that they could recognize. There are people who look like them in situations that they can understand. And then all of a sudden, all of these European avant-garde masters, such as Kandinsky and Picasso and Matisse and Duchamp, are showing for the first time. And aesthetically, it was incredibly uncomfortable and disturbing, and people didn't really know what to do. And so this launched a whole new generation of intersectionality between these American thinkers and their European counterparts. Lizzie, who was the person that was the catalyst for putting the show together? Who was the curator of this? That's a great question. So in Europe, when things like this would happen, they were always sparked by the academy. And so in the academy, there's a very vigorous system of approval. And any kind of submission would have to go through eyes and eyes and eyes of artistic tastemakers before it was accepted into the salon, the shows. But for the Armory show, it was still juried, but it was juried by select people, very, very few. And a couple of them were actually social realist artists. And so they understood the importance of this, this benchmark exhibition and the importance of the aesthetic push from what they were doing into what could be done, the possibility of that. So let's zoom out in New York City during this time. This is 1913. This is 
pre-World War One, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, wait, where am I? Am I wrong? Am I, wait, am that I? That was am 1914. I, right. So am I, am I having a, a brain freeze? So this is pre-World War One, and it's on, I believe, 25th Street and Lexington Avenue? 69th and Lexington Avenue. 69th Street and Lexington Avenue? Yeah. Rich area. So, <laughs> I'm from 98th and Broadway, as everybody knows. So here we are at this armory, and you have... At the last minute, it seems like they're getting the work over there because the work wasn't shipped there till like a month before, right? You've got artists like you said, Picasso, Matisse, but then you have the classical masters. You have Edward Manet, you have Degas, right? And it's probably like a little bit of a, oh my God, these Americans are are, are getting to get their heroes over there in a lot of ways, right? Because these guys were heroes. And so they're shipping their work in on a boat only a month beforehand. They're hanging the show. And the people, the two people that become the speakers or the voice boxes of the movement are Marcel Duchamp and Picabia. 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 I, I don't even know who this guy is, by the way. No, I'm not <laughs> even kidding. I know that he was like a decent impressionist painter. He was good. And he was definitely a showman. He was very wealthy. He lived, he lived the high life. I do know that about him. He's a Dadaist. Did he start out as an Impressionist? Yes. Wow. All right. Because yes. he's yeah, an he's American st- modernist, but perhaps that's because so he was of American. The well, he exhibited with American contemporaries. Okay. So whether he was American born, I'm not sure, but that's how he's canonized. Okay. So he and Duchamp become the the basically the the people representing the vanguards of this whole show and as we know new descending the staircase which i'm sure you're going to wax poetic on in a minute becomes this basically the centerpiece and picabia right is that how we say it it is okay i'm never going to get it right by the way that's never going to happen i like picabia picabia monet manet degas and picabia coming there with kazan Cezanne was part of that show too which is funny and so was Goya. And so was Van Gogh. Yeah. Van Gogh had a... I couldn't believe Van Gogh had a piece there. That is so trippy. Okay, so you have uh, Picabia <laughs> <laughs> writes a whole thing about it, and they, they jokingly say, anybody who can dissect his article on what that goddamn, his explanation was on the Armory show will win a prize. Did you know that? I did, and I also knew that Art News put out an <laughs> ad, a similar ad, saying anybody who can show me where the nude is in Duchamp's 1912 nude descending a staircase gets $10. Which, by the, <laughs> by the way, then was a lot of money. <laughs> right? It sounds really weird and like, what? Why would anyone give away $10? You get that in a McDonald's like uh, Apple Box. I mean, a uh, <laughs> what? what's that called? Happy Meal? Happy Meal. God, it's been so long since Apple I, I, Box? What is that? I, we had a conversation about Apple, uh, an apple pie this morning from McDonald's, Manny and I. And he said, I heard the apple pie is not even apple. It's potatoes wrapped in apple jelly. Ew. You did say that. I said it's a rumor. It might not be true. Yeah, this is, a, this is one of those things. So oh, then apple <laughs> pie and Happy Meal box all stuck together, and it became this portmanteau, like, disturbing thing. Anyway. I love how you have taken portmanteau and, and now use it, use it whenever you Whenever. <laughs> I have to go to the portmanteau, which is really weird. Yeah, because that example was not actually horrible, a portmanteau. Horrible portmanteau. And for you guys, if you've forgotten what a portmanteau is. Brunch. 
Breakfast and lunch, exactly. exactly. Sexting, sex and texting. Exactly. <laughs> Artivism. To, anyway, let's yes. circle back to the Armory Show when none of these things were in existence, Apple yep. boxes or sexting. Exactly, <laughs> which is weird. Or podcasting. What a loss Which is another portmanteau. So, is it? Yes, of course. What, of which two words? Uh, podcast, let's see, broadcast. And what's the P? Look that up. Look up All right, po- I, I'm skeptical. No, no, so, it's definitely a portmanteau. You think podcasting was just invented unto itself? Well, Shakespeare invented words. Why can't other people? Mm, because they're because Shakespeare also invented words that were also portmanteaus. See, so yeah, he did. He he did invent unique <laughs> I words. I just love your enthusiasm for this. Okay, okay, so but I'm going to prove you that I, po- that podcast is a portmanteau. As you are figuring this out, I will okay. tell you about this new descending a staircase, which really received the biggest amount of criticism, but also acclaim. So Duchamp at this point had never been to the United States, and he was experimenting with the tenets of cubism. So basically, he was playing with this concept of time and motion and distilling something that requires a tremendous or even a minimal amount of time, but distilling that within one frame. And for him, it was just the simple gesture of a nude descending a staircase. We are not gendered. We don't know if it's a man, if it's a female-bodied individual or a male. We don't know anything except that this person is without clothes and somehow descending a staircase. But in the work itself, you would have no idea. And one critic actually referred to this painting as an explosion in a shingle factory. And that's really what it looks like because they're just, it's a hodgepodge of shapes and when at this point, American critics are so, sac- they think that figuration is so sacrosanct. How could anybody dislodge that and try to do something new? And then here Duchamp is, and he's giving us a narrative title and not a narrative painting. And it was just really jarring. And if you look at the work, you can see that there is a mass of shapes and you can read the, the head, for instance, you can read the hip bones. And so it's kind of like a stop motion photography. Right. And and we do know that Duchamp was 27 years old when he did that painting. Uh, I mean when he when he was at the Armory, so he probably did it when he, he was 26. He didn't go to the Armory. He didn't go to the Armory? No, he went for the 50-year anniversary, but he did not go, I don't think, to the original. In 1963, he spoke about it first person like he was there. Just so I've heard him talk about the Armory show as if he was there. Maybe he wasn't there. Who cares? Point is, he was very young when he did that painting. It was a painting that was dissected and criticized like people were disturbed by it almost. And to me, as a young artist growing up, that painting really had a lot of weight to it. It really felt like an important piece because obviously all my art history professors loved it and and just completely were swooning over it. But also because you look at it and you could really see pure cubism. You know what I mean? You and 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 he wasn't the first to do that. Let's be honest. He said that he wasn't even influenced by cubism. Because at that point Brock and Picasso had already discovered a lot of cubistic, you know, ideas and had put it onto canvas. But he said, oh, I wasn't even influenced by that. I was influenced by perhaps stop-motion photography, like you said. Now, if that's true or not, who knows? Nobody likes to reveal their sources of reference. It's, you know, it's a secret and people shouldn't. But you really look at that piece, and although it looks not very figurative to me, it looks more like a violin, you do see something different, something new, something unique. 
and cubism, which is looking at things from a relative perspective, from below, above, the side, and in movement, there is something that some pieces of art can't even, you can't even articulate why you like it or why it's important or why it's great. I mean, you could try, but that's one of those pieces to me, which is like, that just felt, felt like an important transitional piece to another era. And, and I think a lot of people thought that that was a gateway painting into the modern art world. Am I wrong about that? Not at all. And it's also an important piece within the oeuvre of Duchamp because we've talked about him as really manifesting this idea of found objects in the fountain from 1917 and tons of, of uh, ready-mades that he produced after that year. But we don't really think about him as a painter. And this was the most important painting that he did. And it really did launch modernism in the U.S., but it also propelled modernism in Europe, where he produced it. And the color palette is important because he didn't want to distract the eye of the viewer with tons of colors. And so everything is just in these these monochromes, and it's almost grisaille, just like the strategy of Picasso and Brock. I just think, it's so funny. There's a couple things that are really funny right now. Number one, the funny thing is that I am right. Podcast is a portmanteau. Podcast <laughs> is a portmanteau word formed by combining iPod oh. and broadcast. Use of the term podcast predated Apple's addition of formal support for podcasting to the iPod or iTunes as software. So another definition is the term podcast is a portmanteau of the name of Apple's portable music player, the iPod and broadcast. A pod refers to a container of some sort, and the idea of broadcasting to a container or pod correctly describes the process of podcasting. Very nice. I stand okay. corrected. So, yeah. Um, but the thing I was actually laughing at was not that I was right. Because <laughs> I'm laughing because at that, I don't, too. I don't laugh at righteousness. <laughs> it happens so rarely. Yeah, that would, that would be <laughs> disturbing that I'd be laughing in your face like that. But what I'm laughing at is that... Here we in 1913, the Americans are like, we're going to do it, America. We're, we're taking off. We're like accelerating past Impressionism. And here we are, the most important painting of the show is a French guy. I mean, really. No, I'm not even like, <laughs> and we need all these Impressionists to come in because these guys are our heroes. America's important, but the most important piece of the entire, entire Armory exhibition historically and at that moment is New Descending the Staircase by Marcel Duchamp, a guy who is French. Yeah, no, that, there is a little bit of irony to that. And I don't think that irony was lost on the curators because they knew that the work that was brought in from other countries would be the work that was discussed. But it's funny because as historians, we assume that everything was European when really only about a third of the total work at the Armory was. And so two-thirds... That would be the aesthetically permissible work, the social realism, the things that are rooted in figuration. And so it's a very small minority of work that was more provocative, but that's the work that we know. And it ended up being really influential to Americans. So you're right, the Americans weren't the ones who were pushing the envelope, but because of this contact with Europe, they ended up altering their style. Dove is an example. He saw a work of Kandinsky's. There was only one Kandinsky in the armory that actually Stieglitz bought for about $350. Oh, wow. That lucky bastard. Now it's at the Met. And Kandinsky was really influenced by music, and people assume that he 
experience synesthesia, which is a blending or a, a pivoting of, of uh, it, it's so hard to describe. You know what it is, but it's like you see sound and mm -hmm. you hear color. And mm -hmm. so you're blending of the senses mm -hmm. or the synapses are not firing. But everybody does that. When you're a painter, you do that anyway. I, but you're saying that his actual canvas was the manifestation of that as opposed to people doing it intuitively. Right, exactly. Paint. Like Monk. People also right. think that the scream suggests that he experienced synesthesia. And so it is uh, a neurological yeah. condition, but who knows? That's we, all bullshit, by the way. <laughs> that's total bullshit. <laughs> the scream is a really powerful piece that's emotionally intense. It's like definitely. But I think that as artists create, they can't help but to play the music of their imagination or the music that they're listening to and blend that with their colors and their palette and everything. And I think everybody's brain is wired differently. But yeah, I mean, no, if they I... want to intellectually bury that in the obscurity of that I that concept, that's fine. And it's also part of the mythology now of Kandinsky. Right. It's oh right. he he heard yeah. color and isn't right. that incredible and it manifested on his canvases in such a wonderful spiritual way. But I like to hear the real stuff. Like Beethoven was deaf. Like he was actually deaf when sure. he wrote the ninth. <laughs> that's a different thing. That becomes it's that's a story, that's a movie, that's a book, that's that's like that's magic, that's masterfulness. The other stuff is just speculation. You know, it's speculative. Sure, legend versus fact. But that yeah. is the legend of Kandinsky, and Stieglitz was really moved by it, and so he bought the piece. But Dove, a an American modernist who went to the show and I think maybe participated in it too, he saw this technique that Kandinsky was was working with, and then it ended up really shifting the direction of his art. And another one would be... Uh, just so many American artists at this time changed their practice because of the work that they saw at the Armory. And I wanted to share a couple of, of anecdotes to go back to New Descending a Staircase. But there's one critic, I think it was for the New York Times, who did a little caricature of the work. And we see in a subway, and it says the taking the subway at rush hour, all of these people, maybe three dozen people, cramped in the same group arrangement as this one nude and it's called the rude descending a staircase <laughs> which good. visually is really fun but it also completely misses the point because Duchamp's painting was a solitary figure moving down the staircase through the lens of time and so the whole point is about collapsing duration into a single moment and then this critic didn't seem to get that because he or she peopled the entire cartoon with tons of different rude New Yorkers. So I love that cartoon versus the original because it just shows that the consciousness of American criticism wasn't yet at the same level of the European production. So that's one anecdote. And then the other is that Duchamp, once he moved to the United States, to New York City, he befriended a really affluent family called the Stettheimers. And we've done a little piece of a podcast on Florine Stettheimer, who is the painter of the family. But she had a sister who created this beautiful miniature dollhouse that's at the Museum of the City of New York. And all of her artist friends made miniature versions of their most iconic work. We have a Lachaise and a Mayo and all of the who's who of American modernism in the 30s 
did miniature examples of their work. Duchamp did a miniature version, actually hand-painted, of New Descending a Staircase. So it's really cool to see, but flash forward decades, this curator wanted to do a comprehensive show of Duchamp's work. And since, as you mentioned, this one painting is so important, it was at a different museum. And how can you legitimize Duchamp's entire body without this painting? So I don't know how the curator knew, but he, she knew about this miniature painting and asked if it could go on loan. So apparently, amidst all of these traditionally sized canvases, we have a teeny tiny new descending a staircase alongside. So I just love that. I think it's so cute. And it's a coup for dollhouses everywhere. Okay. I have a question for you. This is a little pop quiz. You don't have any comments. I'm not going to get the pop quiz. (laughs) Where is the original new Descending the Staircase live? I have never seen it, so I have no idea. Where is it? The Philadelphia Museum of Art. What? Yes. Oh, my God. (laughs) Isn't that weird? That's so upsetting that I didn't see it. (laughs) No, it's fine. It's just interesting because you're like... That is one of the most important paintings of it all time. Is. Where does that painting live? In my and mind. It lives in your mind, <laughs> of course. Oh, but I should also, have said the Museum of the City of New York in a dollhouse. <laughs> yeah, that would have been clever. But it's actually in Philly. Um, I, I mean, it. We we this is this is a bigger conversation, right? This becomes like almost esoteric in its in its in its pure form but why do we all take some of these paintings like i think nude descending the staircase is one of those important pieces that we all think is important but i think we all think it's important because it lives in our collective consciousness because it's in every jansen gardner every art history book every art history professor talks about it it's one of those pieces that we have to so we by association say that's an important piece. And some pieces in history just have that weight. And I think that some pieces do because it's just part of the curriculum, right? It's standardized curriculum that we all have to learn why it's important. And then some pieces, I believe, are really that fucking important. You know what I mean? Like, God damn, the Sistine Chapel, You, I don't think anybody in their, in their right mind could argue that that's an important painting and why it's important. Absolutely not. But are you suggesting that new descending a staircase is more important because it's canonized? No, I'm not. I'm just saying it's, first of all, I'm stating a fact that it is one of the most important images. And I think it's because for me, it's important because I feel like it's, it's the gateway painting into the contemporary art world. Yeah, it is cubistic. It is futuristic. You could put it into a, you could put it into a genre. You could say it's cubism or it's futurism, but I feel like it is definitely one of those paintings where you can see a roadmap in art history to the next dimension. Um, but I think that it also, there are certain paintings that are just make it into the art history books because it fills a void or explains something, and it doesn't necessarily belong there. But I think these are one of the few. I mean, if you looked at the most 100 most iconic paintings of all time, this is in there. This is absolutely in there. Like, no doubt, you can show this painting to the average person. They'll be like, I've seen that before. It's one of those pieces. You know I what I mean? I hope so. And it also has the historical and the critical legitimacy. 
It didn't Absolutely. just exist in a vacuum. We have all of these accounts of how people actually interacted with it. And the Even opening, though most of it was negative. Yeah, but that's great. You know what I mean? My favorite is the negative because then that really shows a lens on the consciousness of the people looking. It has so much more to say about the Americans than it does about Duchamp. Well... And that's a really good point, too, because just and this is for all the artists out there, all the critics out there, all the people out there who are not artists. What a great lesson. Here you are creating a piece that's going to be one of the most powerful, potent, important paintings in history. Yet 90 percent of the people are saying this is trash. This is a disgrace. This is a joke. This is laughable, right? This is an explosion in a shingle factory. That right, is not yeah. a compliment. <laughs> right. I mean, like, what is this? This is completely, this is a complete, like, it's a, it's a blemish in art history. Fast forward, and all of a sudden, this is the most important painting ever. Nobody's saying that now. You don't hear the art critics saying that. You don't hear the historian saying that. You have very few people that would ever speak negatively about this image, right? So it shows you that just because you're creating something now that is not like that is that it, that people are joking about that people are making fun of doesn't mean that when you're dead I'm kidding <laughs> that doesn't mean that down the road it's not a a piece that is potentially significant maybe it's not I'm not saying that but I'm saying we don't we can't lose hope as artists we can't lose hope as people who are who are fans or collectors or historians, that some of those pieces out there that might not be able to make it today doesn't mean that it won't make it tomorrow. It's really unusual. And I was talking to your friend Veronique at, you know, at Christie's, and she said Vermeer was like that. Vermeer was an artist who was, it's a little different of a conversation, but it's not too off base, which is Vermeer was an artist who was basically obscure. And it took this one person to bring Vermeer into the light and made Vermeer fashionable again. Artists go in and out of fashion. Paintings go in and out of fashion. And I think some things become discovered as important later on. And this is definitely one of those pieces that was polarizing initially and jokey that became one of the most, I don't want to say seminal because you're going to try to nail me, but one of the most... <laughs> seminal Ooh. pieces of all time. In really French, are. it sounds less like semen. Although right. funny that you reference semen with Duchamp, because I don't know if you've heard <laughs> of Jesus. This. Only you would say this, Lizzie. Yes, I'm, that's that's true. <laughs> we all bring our own unique perspective to the table, and mine just happens to be about body fluids. So <laughs> there was one work that he did later in his career. And he masturbated on some kind of surface. I don't know what it is, if it was paper, cardboard. And then he sent it to a lover. And I... But not as art. As in, oh, yeah. No, oh, this was art? Okay. This is exhibited as art. It's okay. called Paysage Fautif. Oh, wow. <laughs> really? Yeah, which I think means futile uh, landscape. But that goes to show you, like, with the urinal and the fountain and this piece and New Descending the Staircase, Duchamp was so ahead of his time. Oh, yeah. and Like, he did all the shit that people are doing now that people are like, look what I'm doing now. And it's like, dude, that was done by Duchamp like 50 million years ago. Absolutely. He dismantled this idea of gender binary logic decades before. What do you mean gender binary logic? Well, he had this female persona called Rose C'est la Vie 
and he. How do you skip over that and go right to he dismantled fen, uh, well, gender that was female the thesis by the statement? And now I'm proving it okay. through example. But I only you're only proving it because I asked you. <laughs> I would have gone like the into a, it. The average person out there is going, "What is she talking about?" And now you're like, "Oh yeah, he had a different personality." I was gonna. How get do we there. not know about his different personality? How do you just skip over that? Go ahead. Tell us about who that was. Yeah. So Rose Levy, he said to his friend Man Ray, who was a surrealist photographer who also dabbled in Dada, that he wanted to construct a female identity and also a Jewish identity. Mm. And so he created Rose Levy, which means say uh, Levy. Okay. Yeah. Right. And in that's French. life. That means exactly, that's life. Exactly. That's life. But also couched within say Levy is Levy, which I don't really know if that was intended to pay homage to some kind of Jewishness of his identity, but definitely he would dress for years as a woman. And he, as far as I know, identified as a straight man. But what I really love mm. is that within his work, there's so much body investigation with the fountain, because mm -hmm. what is that? It's a urinal. That is a So he wasn't bi? He wasn't, he was, I no? No, okay. I don't think so, but I don't ultimately think it matters. We don't have to have an identifier sure. to honor and celebrate various parts of ourselves. And the fact that he wasn't just super heteronormative masculine, mm -hmm. to me, is the, is the forward-thinkingness of Duchamp. And so the fountain, that's only really... For male-bodied individuals, the fact that he masturbated on a piece of paper, that's an experience typified of the male body. And so all of these things are male, female, and he's existing within the two. That's amazing. There are artists, however, that have made the transition in their career. There's an amazing artist named Jeff Jones, who's a wonderful illustrator, painter, gifted beyond belief, who later in life transition to Jeff Catherine Jones. So she, she uh, lived the rest of her life out as a woman. Um, but we should do a podcast eventually on Jeff Jeffrey Jones because he was a wonderful artist. Anyway, thank you for finally explaining that to me because that's really <laughs> interesting. No, it shows you like Duchamp was a real artist. Like he was, that's like, does art imitate life or is life imitating art? He is really the quintessential example of somebody who's living that statement. Absolutely. And then just my final comment on New Descending a Staircase, we even see this liminality of gender in that work because we don't know. We assume yeah. it's a woman, but there, there are no female body distinguifier. Um, what is that word? Signifiers. Signifiers, or, yeah. like distinguishing features and yeah, signifiers. Yeah. No, that's yeah, true. So we don't see breasts or anything, yeah. so it could be a man, but we never It could never be a violin. It. <laughs> a lot of people thought it was a violin descending a staircase. <laughs> that's funny. Or a robot, you know, like back then. But no, that's really interesting. That's a good point. Cool. Okay, well, we've learned a lot about the Armory Show, and we've certainly learned a lot more about Duchamp, and by learning about both of those, I think we've learned a lot about history.